1: When Diplomacy Fails presents. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy and welcome Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. A project 5 years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War, the Seven Years War of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon, The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War One Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluges. Britain goes to war. The 1916... To the 1916. Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. This is the second part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered look at the Indian Revolt of 1857, which originally aired as one episode on the 21st of October, 2012. So welcome back to the revolt. Last time we had to set a lot of background for you guys, as we took you through the strange but fascinating years of the developing British presence in India. Over the years, the East India Company changed from merchantmen to middlemen between London and the Indian rulers of the subcontinent, and as the native empires went into decline, the British and their company men felt it only natural to fill in the power vacuum and take every advantage for themselves. With more reform came greater control from the centre in London, until by the early 1800s, the East India Company looked like the de facto imperial arm of Britain. It was a British Empire in India a British Indian colony in all but name. Changes in how the place was governed, how Britons could interact with India's populace and what rights these Britons had to spread Her Majesty's message evolved within the first two decades of the 19th century. Finally, with no native enemy in place to counter its spread, the East India Company seemed poised to take over the entire subcontinent in Britain's name. Yet it would of course be wrong to think that any of this would go off without a hitch. My name is Zach, and you're about to listen to the next part of the Indian Mutiny. But before you do that, let's just have a quick, very quick, 20-second patron ad. So are you ready for this? One, two, three, go. So go to wdfpodcast.com. Oh, crap. Okay, so go to WDFpodcast.com and click on the Patreon banner, and then you can go to the Patreon page, and then you can become a patron, and then you can get loads of wonderful things, including new merchandise and extra content, the extra feed if you're not sick of hearing my voice just yet. That's the best way to help the podcast, help it expand, help it grow, guys, and I really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Woo! Hey, we did it. Okay, cool. Yeah, so, (laughs) not too bad at all. Right, I will now take you to the early 19th century. We could subdue the mutiny of 1857, formidable as it was, because it spread through only a part of the army, because people did not actively sympathise with it, and because it was possible to find native Indian races who would fight on our side. But the moment a mutiny is but threatened, which shall be no mere mutiny but the expression of a universal feeling of nationality, at that moment all hope is at an end, as all desire should be at an end, of our preserving of our empire. Sir John Seeley Once the Mughal Empire collapsed, unity in India was, for all intents and purposes, a thing of the past. Its Muslim influences were still felt depending on the regions you frequented, but Hindu practices and traditions were just as common. The Mughal Empire had, for a time, pacified these potential tensions, advocating policies of tolerance and religious freedom under some of its greatest emperors, but such times had passed. It is thus important that we clarify what we mean when we talk about an India mutiny or revolt, or some people even call it a revolution in 1857, so that we don't make it sound like a great movement of unified peoples who rose up as one to take on the British invaders. The reality is the revolt was confined to the north of India, while some of those in the north, such as the recently defeated Sikhs, actually sided with the British in their attempts to put the rebelling regions down. Of course, there were plenty of nationalistic rhetorics on all sides, and many in the course of the event dreamed of an India, or at least their immediate area, containing no British influence. However, we blow the whole thing way out of proportion if we call it a nationalist movement or a revolution, or imply that the whole of India actively supported it. In many ways, then, it looks a lot like the Boxer Rebellion that we covered in the last remastered episode, and it wasn't quite an accident that I put these two episodes one after the other. It was true that many in the south of India didn't know what was happening in the north of their country, much like in the south of China, many people didn't know what was happening in the north of their country. And many didn't even have a grasp in the south of India of what was happening in Delhi at all. And keep this in mind, because it's very easy to get carried away with conflicts like these. Their place in history is undoubtedly secure, which obviously is why I'm covering it in the first place, but we should always ensure that the place we give it is accurate for its purpose at the time. So with that disclaimer out of the way, keeping my shrine to context well worshipped, let's begin counting down the days to the revolt. So what were the main causes of the 1857 mutiny? Well, that's the golden question. If you're familiar with this incident in history at all, you may also be familiar with the tale of the greased cartridges. If you are, and if this rings a bell, then that's great. If not, then don't worry, all will become clear soon enough. For those of you expecting me to use the greased cartridges as a handy excuse, you're about to be disappointed, and for a few reasons. First of all, common misconceptions really annoy me, and without trying to sound like a bitter old man, the Indian Revolt, as a second point, even though it occurred only in the north of the country, involved too many distinct ethnic and religious groups to be caused by one single thing. And that's why contemporary historians, my Sikh professor in this subject among them, find the widely accepted view that greased cartridges started a grand mutiny across the subcontinent so annoying. Herman Kolk and Dietmar Rothermund explain in their book, simply entitled History of India, that the Revolt of 1857 was neither a national war of independence nor simply a mutiny. It spread over much of northern India and affected many strata of the population. The new educated elite did not participate in it for fear of the chaos or restoration of the old order it might bring. Apart from the soldiers, the rebels were mostly disgruntled landlords and peasants, and some disinherited princes. What had caused this part of India to revolt, though, and why only now? For centuries, at this stage as we've seen, the Indians had been subjected to British rule, and would have had many reasons during this time to throw off the British yoke, or at least try to. Unfortunately, for the sake of clarity, there isn't any clear-cut answer for this, but I'll throw one of mine in there anyway. Respect and the idea that the British needed the Indians to carry out the tasks that needed doing such as conquest, administration and reinforcement of British authority were strong incentives to keep those Indians in your employ happy. A certain level of respect and consideration was necessary for the early relationship between Indian and Britain to succeed, especially, obviously, for the British. Just look at the way their East India Company possessions came to be earned. If British soldiers, however strong and technologically advanced, had tried to conquer the entire Indian subcontinent, they of course would have become bogged down and eventually been forced to withdraw. It was common sense on the part of the British that, if you treat the Indian well, pay him what he's owed and don't threaten his way of life, then the whole process of extending British influence over India would become much easier. The British, however accidentally or without any real plan of an Indian takeover, established the East India Company in such a position at such a time and so tactically that it was bound to expand. The problems began when the British, having removed their last rival from the continent at the beginning of the 1800s, woke up and realised one day that their policy of slowly acquiring bits of India piecemeal had resulted in a complete domination of the Indian subcontinent. Britain no longer had to respect the Indian man because they owned him. Now try to think like a 19th century imperial evangelist on top of all this. You'd be thinking, what if this was meant to happen? What if the unnatural way of acquiring our Indian holdings was by some divine intervention? Could you as the British, as the new masters of the ancient land, really pass up the chance to spread your good traditions and values, or indeed your faith among the natives? Well, of course not. The natives, while they may be backward in their way of life and comparatively poor in mind to you, certainly deserve to have their souls saved, You did just ensure slavery would not persist, among your other worldly domains after all, and some Indian practices were purely barbaric and could not be allowed to continue. These infidels should conform to the right way, the British Christian way of life. To refute this is to refute all logic and reason, and even evoke damnation. Insane as this may seem to us today, William Dalrymple explains that this view began to permeate all British undertakings in the Indian lands. He wrote... The new attitude of the Evangelicals was only part of a more widespread and visibly growing arrogance on the part of the increasingly powerful British. Since they had finally succeeded in conquering and subduing the Sikhs in 1849, the British finally found themselves the master of South Asia. Every single one of their military rivals had been conquered. Bengal in 1757, the French in 1761, Tipu Sultan of Mysore in 1799, and the Marathas in 1803, And, again, finally, in 1819. And Dalrymple continues, For the first time, there was a feeling that technologically, economically, culturally, politically and spiritually, the British had nothing to learn from India and much to teach. It didn't take long for imperial arrogance to set in. This arrogance, when combined with the rise of evangelical Christianity, slowly came to affect all aspects of relations between the British and the Indians. A British imperial mission with much to learn and almost in awe of the history and culture they ruled over, was replaced by a body which believed it knew better and could afford to dismiss the foolish ideas of the locals, taking for granted a millennia of history, culture, spirituality, literature, traditions, legacies and ideals. In a fast-forwarded version, this was a major cause of the revolt, yet nothing apparently could be done by the Indian sepoys who had been trained in the arts of war thoroughly by Britain, shielding them, for the most part, from the caste system, which Britain so loathed and failed to understand. The British consciously and openly began to act as though the Indians owed them something, and this translated into a negative environment in the armies in the north of the territory, where the Bengal army, surrounded by haughty, disrespectful and ignorant officers from Britain, began to agitate and chafe under their command. In this type of atmosphere, it became easy for these Indians to believe that the British would aim to dishonour them in the most awful way possible, in other words by defiling their religious traditions. This comes down to the idea of the greased cartridges that have been so trumpeted since the event. Trust me, if I could simply point to this as the cause of all the revolt rather than droning on for an episode and a half beforehand, I'm sure you and I would have far easier lives, but for a variety of reasons, it's not that simple. Brian Farwell, in his book, Queen Victoria's Little Wars, explains the situation far better than I could, when he writes, For several years there had been unrest among all the sepoys of the Indian army because of these new cartridges which were greased, so a frightening rumour said, with the fat of pigs and cows. From barracks to barracks of the Bengal army the rumor spread and grew. The British were trying to subvert their religion, for cartridges were normally torn open with the teeth, before loading, And for a Hindu to eat the fat of the sacred cow, or for a Muslim to eat the fat of a pig, was an abomination almost too frightful to imagine. Not through malice or design, but through sheer stupidity on the part of somebody in London. There were indeed some, a very select few number of cartridges, covered with such grease sent to India. Officers in the Indian army were quick to withdraw the cartridges, and in an effort to placate the sepoys' fears, the Governor-General issued a proclamation declaiming any attempt by the British to destroy the caste system or offend religious beliefs, and orders were issued for a new loading drill which would have enabled the sepoys to tear open the cartridges with their fingers instead of their teeth, but the damage had already been done. It was not so much the fact that the British actually issued offensively greased cartridges to the sepoys, since no sepoy was ever able to come directly in contact with them, withdrawn as they were in record time, but the important fact was that the Indians actually believed that the British did this. The British reaction towards these sepoys that refused to arm themselves with ammunition they believed to contain the grease were told of the harmlessness of the hardware in relation to their beliefs, but for these Indians, subjected to the kind of suspicion of the British officer, which had been entrenched owing to the recent trends and creeping British arrogance and insensitiveness towards their Indian charges, It was very difficult to believe them, and we can see why this would be the case. The damage, that of the rumour of British intentions, had been done, regardless of the reality that the British would never have been stupid enough to deliberately offend the sepoys' religious taboos to such an extent, and they certainly wouldn't have done it out of malice. They were at least smart enough to know how unpopular such measures would have been. For this reason, my history friends, I would kindly ask you to leave the classroom had you gleefully told me that the sole reason for the 1857 revolt was greased cartridges. The real reason was the awful reputation that the British had built with their Indian subjects over the past few decades for arrogance, ignorance and dogmatism. Had that reputation not existed, had the relationship been as apparently cordial as it had, say, before the evangelical movement?
0: Ready to pop the question? A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: ...and the changing of the Anglo-Indian relationship that came with it in the early 1800s, then it's likely the British would have been able to defuse the situation, or that the ability of the British agents to dismiss the rumours would have carried more weight with the Indians, since these concerned Indians would have had no reason, in the form of a bad track record, to point to. James Andrew Brown Ramsay, 1st Marquis of Dalhousie, was Governor-General of India from 1848 to 56, and during this time only increased the negative reputation of the British. He enacted a new regulation in 1856, his last year in the position, which would force sepoys to serve overseas in the empire, particularly in Burma, which was tremendously unpopular. He advocated the doctrine of lapse, which meant that small-time princes would have their lands confiscated and annexed if they left no male heir to their kingdoms. This was clearest in the example given with the annexation of Ood or Awad in Indian sources, a kingdom in about the top centre of the upside-down Indian triangle. This would become Britain's most ferocious enemy in the years to come, but for now Dalhousie acted as though nothing could go wrong. He intervened heavily in every aspect of Indian life, invoking civil reforms, agrarian reforms, and even attempting to reduce the impact of the caste system in Indian life, all the while apparently oblivious to the storm about to rise. He claimed in 1855 that, There is no justification for the cry that India is in danger. The safety of India has never for one moment been imperiled by the partial insubordination in the ranks of the army. Dalhousie was about to become a hated figure of disaffected Indians in the years to come, and it is clear that the role he played in the revolt is both enormous and also not well publicised. His actions did not merely add fuel to the fire, they actually dug the suitably small hole in the ground, fetched the appropriate tinder, set up the tinder, and then stood beside it, sheepishly. The revolt of the sepoy soldiers in Meerut, 40 miles from Delhi, on the evening of the 10th of May, 1857, hours after their friends had been horrendously disrespected and marched into captivity in chains right in front of them, was the spark which set alight this flammable structure, even as Dalhousie sat back in Britain, refusing to accept that he'd set it up to ignite in the first place. It was a dusty and unusually hot morning on the 11th of May 1857. The beginning of Ramadan meant that many were fasting, and as such tempers were bound to flare. Thus, Bahadur Shah Zafar II likely believed that it was mere civilian anxieties and short tempers which were making such a racket down below. At 82 years old, Zafar was the last in the line of Mughal emperors, though in reality he was an emperor in name only, having become entirely dependent on the British for everything from his pay, to his pension, to his accommodation in the Red Fort of Delhi, which had housed many an imperial official in the past, and for his protection, as he possessed a private contingent of his own British company guards. The British saw the value in keeping Zafar in a place as a ceremonial figurehead, and claimed to be representing him when it suited them, while they could easily ignore him when it didn't. The restless sepoys down below had charged from Merut 40 miles away after rising up, attacking a small number of residents, less than 50 were killed out of the 3,000 British that resided there, and marching in a disorganized fashion to Delhi. It is not certain who the ringleader of this force was at the early stage, but certainly the goal seems to have been to subvert the British authority in India, and convert the aged Zafar to their cause and position him as hopefully the unifying force behind their movement in the process. When the sepoys eventually reached Zafar, who by that stage had fled to within the innermost confines of his residence in terror, they bowed at his likely shaking feet and proclaimed him emperor and begged him to lead them in revolution. Zafar, shocked, confused, and probably a bit senile, was also becoming aware of the restlessness of the sepoys who had placed themselves at his disposal. It was a case of either join their movement, or lose his usefulness, and Zafar probably remembered nostalgically the glorious days of the Mughal Empire and allowed himself to be convinced that those days were not behind him. He eventually decided to side with the rebels, and he called his first imperial council in many years with a group of excited senior sepoys on the morning of the 16th of May. By this time word had spread to the sepoy garrisons around Delhi and practically all joined the rebellion while British soldiers within the city sacrificed themselves by blowing up the gunpowder stocks, setting off a chain reaction of riots within Delhi that never completely ceased until a month later. The British reaction to the revolt was fantastically amateurish in many regions, and some only served to encourage yet more dissent. In the aftermath of the revolt in Delhi, when word got out that Delhi had in fact risen up, at least in some way, British families in Agra 160 miles distant from it were terrified that the revolt was greater and more widespread than it actually was, so they endeavoured to move their families to safety. Since most of these were military families, the sight of so many soldiers leaving increased the atmosphere of hysteria in the region, and by the time a force of 6,000 disorganised and hastily armed rebels appeared outside the gates of Fort Agra, the majority of the interior soldiers had fled south – which left only the sepoys inside, who themselves soon defected. British attempts to disarm their sepoys met with anger in most cases, as the combination of a lack of consideration and a failure on the part of the British to determine friend from foe created a resentful and resistant sepoy force, the majority of whom fought against their British masters, but many still who simply abandoned their positions and deserted into the countryside. More Indian sepoys deserted than actually joined the revolt, and although some states, like the recently annexed Oud that we talked about earlier, fought ferociously, the states of the Punjab and others in the north, which were populated by Sikhs, still fought for the British, as per the treaty they had made years before with them. As early as July 1857, the arrangements in Delhi were starting to encounter problems, as Dalrymple explains. By the end of July, the victory over the British seemed increasingly remote, and which more likely outcome it now seemed was the imminent unravelling of the stitching which held Delhi together, the peaceful coexistence between Hindu and Muslim. Though the British were astonished at how seriously some took the Mughal emperor at this time, they were far more threatened by the uprising of, prepare for a butchered pronunciation, the Gurjars, an ethnic Indian group in central Meerut, than what was going on in Delhi. Once the East India Company organized itself, it was able to march towards its objectives with ruthless efficiency, relying on local allies and the disorganized and fragmented nature of the revolt to defeat the Indians. The speed at which the Indian forces were swept aside sent Zafar II spiraling into a sense of depression that he never truly recovered from. His senility got worse, and he ceased to exist as anything other than someone to blame once the conflict ended, since those in Delhi and across the revolting states had stopped listening to him since the revolt heated up and military command was properly needed. With the defeat of the Indian forces at Karnal, a hundred miles north of Delhi, the fate of the revolt appeared to be sealed as early as the 1st of July, once British and allied East India Company troops laid siege to Delhi that day. The siege actually lasted until the middle of September, but by that time Zafar had lost all hope and he retreated to the tomb of Humayun, the great Mughal Emperor for meditation and contemplation, and this was where the British found him and his sons when they had finally taken the city over completely by the end of September. His sons, incidentally, were later killed, but Zafar himself was charged with treason and sent into exile. From Delhi, British troops advanced into Agra and retook its fort in October 1857, and then they pressed on to Kanpur. If that name rings a bell for you, then congratulations. You, my history friend, have probably been subjected to some form of British imperial propaganda in your lifetime. The siege and the resulting massacre and grisly fate of the surviving women and children of Cawnpore has often been trumpeted as the prime example of the barbarity of the Indian sepoy. But let me set the scene first. Kanpur revolted in June 1857, along the same lines as Delhi, while the British and East India Company contingent of men were holed up in a tiny space, barely the size of an Olympic swimming pool, as an accurate comparison, which housed nearly 2,000 men, women and children. The siege of this small area lasted for over three weeks. Eventually officers within it were able to broker a deal whereby the East India Company's men, women and children would be allowed to leave and set off downriver river to British-controlled Allahabad unmolested. But what happened next is not entirely clear. While they were climbing onto the boats apparently meant for Allahabad, someone started firing. Historians debate over who started firing first, but either way chaos ensued. Men, women and children were caught in the crossfire as many tried in vain to push the boat out of the shallow water and into the moving river. We are told that only four men survived, according to Jan Morris in her book, Heaven's Command and Imperial Progress, she wrote that Four men, two English and two Irish, arrived completely naked and exhausted at their destination by the beginning of July 1857, two of whom later died in action, and one captain, Mowbray Thompson, wrote his personal account of the event, entitled The Story of Conpoor. The fate of those 200 or so, mostly women and children, who couldn't get away was especially grisly. Having been housed in a confined former colonial building for two weeks, the remaining women and children were set upon by butchers and a few peasants after the regular soldiers refused to kill them. The reason for the sudden need to kill the prisoners, you might be wondering? Well, the East India Company forces were said to be rapidly gaining ground. On the 15th of July, they defeated an Indian force near Allahabad and were fast approaching Kanpore itself. Nonetheless, the fates of those individuals who had once called Kanpore their home were used to inspire a now ferocious aggression among the now advancing company soldiers, who were said to have made the rebelling sepoys lick the blood off the walls of the colonial house in Cawnpore, where the massacre had occurred, before hanging them and sticking them with bayonets. As "Remember Cawnpore" rang out as the battle cry. Perhaps this enthusiasm on the part of the British hastened the defeat of the rebels, since the peace treaty was signed on the 8th of July, 1858 after such famous battles as Lucknow had immortalised the British military skill, while the massacre at Cawnpore apparently justified it. The particularly infamous example of the British reprisal, where rebels and mutinous sepoys were attached to the fronts of cannons as they were fired, demonstrated the extent to which the rebellion had been defeated. The Mughal court was utterly shamed, and the British public were constantly informed of how heroic the average British soldier was, and how the innocence of the British woman had been violated by the barbarity of the sepoy mutineer. The biggest tragedy surrounding this whole thing is that it all could have been avoided had Britain not changed so drastically its policies in India. Although the revolt never came all that close to ending the British Indian state, It did give Britain's colonial office the kick in the pants that it needed. The biggest result of this kick in the pants? The East India Company, Britain's middleman in India for almost 250 years, was abolished and it was replaced with direct rule from Britain. This meant an official end to the beating around the bush in India. India was now officially an imperial acquisition and it was as intrinsically linked to Britain as a symbol of its prosperity and soon its identity as it ever would be. Thus, with the implementation of what was called the Government of India Act in 1858, Britain was able to absorb the entirety of the company's territory, its army, and its administration. In doing so, it came one step closer to becoming the Imperial Britain, which, by the dawn of the 20th century, possessed an empire that owned one-sixth of the globe, and whose monarch, Queen Victoria, represented Britain's proudest, strongest, and brightest age. While modern-day Indians tend to inflate the importance of the 1857 revolt, calling it a war for independence or the first Indian War of Independence and celebrating its 150th anniversary in 2007 as one of the proudest moments of Indian nationalism, we shouldn't snort at this just because the reality of the conflict was different. I gave a similar treatment to my own homeland's view of its own mutiny, or rising as the Republicans like to call it, for the 2016 centenary miniseries. In a way, the two conflicts are actually quite similar – a small event, nowadays exaggerated in the media and culture, and pointed to as the seminal event of nationalism. On the other hand, though, it realistically did nothing but encourage Britain to crack down and, in so doing, create an atmosphere that basically ensured independence would come in the future. In Ireland's case, it would occur in the decade after the rising, but in India, this long, drawn-out process would take almost 90 years such was the importance of India to Britain as the jewel in its imperial crown. So it was the British reaction rather than the event itself which holds the most historical importance. Thanks to British imperial propaganda disseminated throughout the centuries, we will remember Cawnpore, or at least be aware of it, whether we want to be or not. In my view though, it was the common Indian who deserves mention, faced as he was with hopeless odds, but captivated as he became by the idea that India could someday, perhaps, be free. And that, history friends, is the end of our look at the Indian Revolt. Thanks very much for listening, and I will, of course, be seeing you very soon.